Um, the scripture lesson today is from Acts 2, 42 to 47. I'm going to read uh, from the Weymouth translation. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and community, to breaking bread, and to prayer. And reverent fear came upon them all because many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. All who believed were together, and they shared all things in common, and they sold their property and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all, to anyone that had a need. And they gathered daily in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house, eating their food with gladness and humble hearts, praising God and having the favor of all the people. And daily the Lord added those who were being saved to their number. These are our sacred stories. The first century world was in chaos. The presumptive replacement for Emperor Tiberius in Rome was unexpectedly charged with treason and executed. And throughout the imperial world, a new wave of conservatism took hold. Unrest, anxiety, maneuvering, betrayals. It's into all of this that the spirit comes on Pentecost. This milieu is not typically part of the story we tell. The story the established church tends to tell is Jesus dies, is resurrected, ascends, and then the spirit arrives with Pentecost and understanding spreads across the nationalities and classes, genders, and generations. The church begins and all are one, or as our lection for this morning, which comes just after the story of Pentecost tells it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to breaking bread and prayers, awe came over everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having goodwill for all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number. Depending on who's telling the story, the tale continues like this with unity until the Reformation arrives and everything is torn asunder. That's not what happens, of course. It's not even what happened at Pentecost or in the formation of those first groups that became churches. Just read the rest of Acts. Read Paul's mail. Scholars of Christianity, of Christian history, are fairly unanimous in seeing these words just after Pentecost as aspirational rather than as descriptive. And surely that doesn't surprise us. Well before we get to Acts, when we're reading through the Second Testament, unity of mind and sharing all things in common with glad and generous hearts is not quite how we describe the followers of Jesus in the Gospels. The disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying most of the time. They argue among themselves with shocking regularity while Jesus seems to care so much more about who, what's being done to care for and feed, to tend and clothe than he does about creeds or orthodoxy. Jesus never lays out right belief. That's not what Jesus and his followers have in common. They wouldn't agree on the doctrine of the Trinity either. Instead, Jesus speaks of turning the other cheek, of banquets where everyone is welcome, 
How can we even pretend to have all things in common or implement a one-size-fits-all program in a world where there are 82,000 ways to order a cup of coffee? We can thank Diana Butler Bass for the pointedness of that question. 82,000 ways to order coffee. Do you remember that scene in the movie, You've Got Mail? Joe Fox, played by Tom Hanks, notes, the whole purpose of places like Starbucks is for people with no decision-making ability whatsoever to make six decisions just to buy one cup of coffee. Short, tall, light, dark, calf, decaf, low-fat, non-fat, etc. So people who don't know who the hell they are or what on earth they're doing can, for only $2.95, get not just a cup of coffee, but an absolutely defining sense of self. Tall, decaf, cappuccino. 82,000 ways to have a defining sense of self. You can tell by the price listed for coffee that You've Got Mail came out several years ago. But I find the concept of identity, of a sense of self in a world with so many choices to be compelling. And on a day where we're considering what we have in common, I cannot help but think of it again. Commonality, community, identity. They all swirled together in those early days as the church was forming. And they all swirl in our days, too. Community is vital for exploring identity. Often, when creating community, we begin with a place of commonality. That's how we figure out who our friends are going to be. We all like the same show, for example. It's helpful, this commonality. But I think we do ourselves and each other a huge disservice if we end there. Can we make room not only for what we share, but also for our truly different ideas and ideals, our opposite commitments? Learning to live together and to value each other does not mean watering down our own identities to the lowest common denominator. It does require it does not require us to relinquish our distinctiveness, our own traditions and culture. What we want to do, what we hope and work for, is openness that welcomes people to be themselves with all their particularity. Be themselves while also engaging with authenticity in the creation of community where identity is explored and celebrated. Preacher's kids are famous, or rather infamous, for being rebellious, being hellraisers. I think one reason preacher's kids get a bad rap is the same reason that military children are often called army brats. It's the moving, the moving all the time. If you missed it, that's my father. We moved nine times before I was 10 years old. Part of that was my dad's call to ministry. He went to seminary when I was a year old. And then like many young ministers, we moved churches often. Journey was a huge part of my childhood. Our covenant book club read Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God by Caitlin Curtis. If you didn't read it with us, I would still highly recommend it. 
Many of her words have stayed with me, but I've come back again and again to this line. Identity does not come to us without journey. Identity does not come to us without journey. We know this truth. How many of us can tell stories of study abroad and the new levels of understanding that came to us when we were surrounded by strangers in a strange land? This truth is embodied in our sacred stories too. Adam and Eve left home for the wilderness east of Eden. Abraham and Sarah left the only home they had known to make a home of wandering. Jacob journeyed alone away from family and established a new home, a new residence. Jonah ran from God to the sea and then found himself inside of a fishy home. Elijah left home and then made home with strangers. Ezekiel became the voice of the exiled far from homeland in the unwelcome home of captivity in Babylon. Stories Jesus tells of the reign of God are stories of losing and finding home, of wandering sons and lost sheep, people who travel, those who are lost in a boat in a storm, of reunited families and found sheep, of storms calm, of parties where everyone is welcome. Jesus himself left home picking up companions along the road, each of whom we are told also left their homes to follow him. They made a new kind of home together, a home not tied to place, but connected to justice and compassion, to belonging. I was six years old when I asked Jesus to make home in my heart. Jesus's new dwelling was established just a few weeks after my own relocation. That move, while by no means the first of my young life, is the first move I remember. I remember going from a first grade, where story time seemed to be the central component of our learning, to our new school, where my new first grade teacher seemed to want us to do calculus and read Plato. <laughs> I remember the church we left, a church with people who seemed to adore me. I remember meeting the people at the new church and the new kids and the new Sunday school teachers and the confusing feelings of abandonment and belonging, of exclusion and welcome. The biggest change was our new house. It seemed enormous to my six-year-old senses. About 20 years ago, I went with my dad back to that church. He was preaching a revival there. And I'm going to tell you this, the church and the parsonage had shrunk. <laughs> the actual size of the parsonage in particular was shocking. It was maybe 1,200 square feet, maybe. But in my six-year-old mind, it was a mansion. A new home, new friends, new teachers, new church family. You've had this experience. A new place, new people. How do we create home? I've compared notes with other preachers' kids who've moved around a lot and lived in parsonages. We all talk about the experience of the creation of a sense of home in that new dwelling place. For some, it was the hanging of a particular picture in a prominent place in the new house. 
For others, it was the first cookout after moving day. In my family, as soon as my mom made cinnamon rolls, we could settle in and believe that we would be cared for and that all would be well. If only cinnamon rolls could create such security now. So with my new home, I decided to make room in my heart for Jesus. That's what I was told everyone needed to do. That Jesus was standing at the door of my heart knocking and all I had to do was issue an invitation and then Jesus would dwell within me and I would be a home for God. There was a lot of excitement for me in walking down the aisle and being baptized. But once the adrenaline began to wore off, wear off, I couldn't tell much difference between the Laura before and the Laura after, between my regular six-year-old self and my new six-year-old home for God. We don't talk much about accepting Jesus into our hearts, and I think that's likely a positive change because it tends to carry with it the idea that Jesus, that God, is only where invited in my heart because I asked, but not in yours because you didn't. We've progressed our language and our theology to talk about God as everywhere and part of everything. And while I think that's right, that God, who we sometimes name love, is all around us and in each of us and in the connections among us, I also think we might be missing some of the mystery of divine presence by not being intentional about making home for God. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, In the beginning, God created the world as a home for humanity. Since then, God entrusted us to create a human world, which will be in the structures of our common life, a home for divine presence. God lives wherever we treat one another as beings in God's image. Well, maybe this is one of those thousands of examples of a both-and scenario. Maybe God dwells everywhere, and maybe God needs us to make particular room in our lives and in our interrelatedness for God to dwell. Perhaps this is the commonality we share, this home for the divine. Part of the description of the community in Acts certainly sounds familiar to me. Day by day, as they spent much time together, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having goodwill for all. I've known meal after meal to be shared with new mothers and fathers, with the sick, with Montrose Grace Place and hospitality apartments. I've known vegetables harvested here and taken to the Women's Center. I've experienced firsthand your glad and generous hearts. I have seen your goodwill. I've seen you acknowledge the dwelling of the divine in and among us and work hard to make a home of welcome for God, for love, for everyone here in this place. We symbolically and sometimes literally make cinnamon rolls for coffee time, where we share more than just a hot drink and a snack. We put on our name tags, and we help those just learning names and those of us who need a refresher 
to feel like all those stories of the disciples realizing the person they've been with wasn't a stranger, but was their dear friend. Stranger here is quickly recognized as a fellow traveler, a friend, as someone now home. We try to work in our city and in our state for home, for inclusion, for welcome and safety for all. And so my friends, that passage in Acts starts to sound a little more like covenant to me. We do the work of identity and community, of making home for God. We keep living day by day in love. I am so grateful for each one of you and what we share. We do not have everything in common. And what we do have in common, what we share, this desire to make welcome, to create belonging, this feeling of home, the work that we do together for peace and justice, this, this is surely the work of the church. Together, we embody love with glad and generous hearts. And I'm so grateful. Amen.